Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, last week we saw the magnificent incident at Massa and Meribah, not magnificent on Israel's part, they tested God and made him very angry, but magnificent on God's part as he stood before Moses and allowed himself to be struck. And here, that's followed up by this story about Amalek coming and attacking Israel and God's sworn oath to protect his kingdom and deliver and defend his people. Exodus 17, starting at verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father, a hand was stretched out against your throne. We pray that you would show us your dedication to protecting your throne. And that means your dedication to delivering your people from all all our enemies and all your enemies. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage tonight and that you would help us to fervently pray for your kingdom to come. We thank you for Christmas time when your son came, when the king came to bring in the kingdom. And we pray that he would return and consummate that work. Free us from distraction. Help us to pay attention to your word as we hear it tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've had three gripe sessions in a row. Israel complains about water in chapter 15, food in chapter 16, water again in chapter 17. And then to follow up those three gripe sessions, Amalek comes and attacks. Amalek is a tribe descended from Esau that lived in the desert south of the promised land. And something made them mad. It doesn't say why they attacked. It just says that they came out and attacked Israel. Cut off their tail, as Moses puts it in Deuteronomy. So Amalek attacks, allowing God to reveal himself again as the God who is dedicated to the welfare of his people and ultimately the welfare of his kingdom. So we saw in the gripe sessions, God says, I will provide for you. Stop complaining. 
Now, when they're being attacked, it seems like they have learned something. We don't read that the people complained. How come we always get attacked by Amalek? Instead, we see God providing a way for them to have victory over Amalek. So remember, Exodus is the book of the knowledge of God. We've seen God responding to his people's complaints and providing for them in the wilderness. Now, we continue to see what God is like. This time, with his statement about protecting his throne by having war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the Lord shows his commitment to his kingdom, to defending his throne, and thus to defending his people. The first point is obvious, Amalek attacks. Verse 8, Amalek just comes and fights. Israel didn't provoke them, Israel didn't attack them. Amalek came out and attacked them. Clearly the message of Exodus is that you won't be bored serving God. Already we've had escape from slavery. Oh, and before that we had escape from genocide, then escape from slavery. We've had adventures through the Red Sea. We've had a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, burning bush, desert tribes. All kinds of material is here. Israel wasn't bored as they served God. And they're not bored now as Amalek comes and fights with them. The Christian life is not a life free of enemies or problems. Life in the wilderness is not going to be easy. But then Moses says, Joshua, you go fight them. I'll lift up my hands on top of the hill. And this has been traditionally taken as a lesson about prayer. Modern commentators typically say, no, not about prayer. Never says that Moses prayed. He just goes up on the hill and when he raises his hands, victory. When he drops his hands, defeat. And it makes for a great Sunday school lesson and you can have somebody play Moses and somebody play Aaron and somebody play her. But it is a lesson about prayer, not about verbal prayer, but this is Moses praying for God's victory. Moses doesn't pray verbally. He prays with his body language. He holds out his hands to ask for God's help. Prayer means looking to God for help and strength. And that is most definitely what Moses is doing in this passage. He looks to God for God's help. He looks to God for God's strength. So, how do we know that? Well, Moses describes it first by saying, Joshua, you go fight with Amalek. I'll stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So he mentions the rod of God at the beginning, and then he doesn't mention it again. But there's two parts here. There's Joshua in the valley. There's Moses on the hill. Joshua fights with the sword. Moses intercedes in prayer. So, should you pray with body language? Well, in one sense, yes. Prayer, but on the other hand, most prayers in Scripture are verbal. God is a person, a personal God. We can speak to Him. You can say a lot more with words than you can 
with a pose. To just stand and reach out your hands to God is good sometimes. And Moses basically had one request here. Beat Amalek. And rather than standing on the hill saying, please beat Amalek, please beat Amalek, please beat Amalek, please beat Amalek, he just stood and reached out his hands to God asking for that through the whole day. But at the same time, right, the Lord's Prayer is not a yoga pose that Christ taught his disciples. Get into this position and that will supplicate God for these things. On the other hand, it's hard to act like you really want somebody to help you if you're floating on your back in a hot tub or if you're lolling in a recliner. So there is something to our physical posture. The other thing we can say is that Moses is unable to maintain this posture all day. He needs Aaron and her. We know that typically if you don't have a workout buddy, you won't get fit. If you don't have a prayer partner, you may not get much prayer done. So Aaron and her help Moses to intercede. So we need to pray. We need to ask God for his help and we need to work. Moses shows us the prayer Joshua shows us the work. If you're praying, in other words, God help me lose weight while keeping a big pantry full of high calorie snacks, you're not really praying. If you're praying, God help me be chaste while texting your mistress every day, you're not really praying. And so it is here. Moses didn't just go on the hill and pray, God, please drive back Amalek. He sent out the warriors with Joshua. So they win. Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses something extremely cryptic. Well, not the first part. Write this in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So God summarizes this incident for Israel. He makes a written promise. God doesn't put very many things in writing. There's a few times, right, Jesus writing with his finger in the dust. But here, God says, you can write this down and then go read it out loud to Joshua. Here's my promise. I will destroy the memory of Amalek. God takes this attack on his people very seriously. By destroying the memory of Amalek, he doesn't mean... We'll make sure no one ever hears about Amalek again. Now he almost did that with Pharaoh. In terms of Pharaoh's name is never mentioned here in the book of Exodus. And people to this day don't know which Pharaoh was the Exodus Pharaoh. There's a number of guesses out there. Every guess has several big objections to it. But Amalek's name is mentioned here and in several other places throughout Scripture. So what does God mean when he says, I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek? Well, something like we might say we should blot out the memory of the Third Reich. Not that no one should ever hear about Hitler, but rather Hitler was so evil we need to describe what he did in order to keep it from happening again. That's what God means by blotting out the memory of Amalek. Making it so well known what Amalek did that no one will imitate that again. And there's a paradox here for sure. Don't forget to remember. Don't remember. Remember to forget Amalek. 
how can I remember to forget? Like one of my friends said, I can't remember the last time I forgot something. But God says, make this a memory, write it down so it definitely won't perish. I will blot out Amalek from under heaven. That's God's written promise, and it's first and foremost for Joshua. Joshua was down there in the battle doing the hard work of driving back these people who were attacking his tribes. And God comes to him with this refreshing promise and says, don't worry, we, I am dealing with Amalek. I will blot out their memory. Moses responds, first of all, by building an altar. Building an altar happens throughout the Pentateuch. An altar is a pile of stones on which you could sacrifice an animal to God. You kill the animal, you drain its blood, and then you can burn it up or burn up part of it. It's a way of giving that animal to the Lord. It's not always recorded that the altar builders sacrificed on their altar. It doesn't say whether Moses sacrificed on this one, but he did build it. He established a place of worship. That's how he responds to God's promise to protect his people. God, because you're going to protect us, I will worship you. Whether that was sacrifice, whether that was just prayer, the text doesn't say. But that should be our response too. God has said, I will deliver you. I will save you. I will protect you from your enemies. And our response should be worship. God, we come to church, we bow before you, we praise you, we declare how excellent and wonderful you are. And then Moses gives this altar a name. Not every altar is named, but some altars are named. And he names this one, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nissi. Now what does that mean? Well, it means, God, I solemnly swear that I will fight your battles. In those days, in warfare, you had the flag, the standard of your side, and you defended that at all costs because it symbolized your side's resilience, your willingness to fight, your totem, as it were. So the Romans had their eagles that each legion carried, and Israel, too, had banners, and so did these other, these other tribes that they fought. So to have the banner there was to say, our unit is intact, we're still fighting. If the banner goes down, if the banner gets captured, then we're lost. We are no longer cohesive enough to protect our, our flag, and so they've beaten us. So just as if you're in the U.S. military, you serve our nation's flag. So it is, if you're in the Lord's army, you serve the Lord who is your flag in Moses' metaphor. God is my banner. Wherever he is, is the thick of the fight. I follow him wherever he goes. So just like being led by the cloud and fire, so they're led, in one sense, by God who has become their banner. So Moses worships God who promised to blot out Amalek and says, God, I'm with you. I'm in your unit. I fight for you. You're my flag. And thus, to taking of Iwo Jima, 
symbolized by planting the American flag there on Mount Suribachi. Again, that says, the U.S. owns this now. Well, God is our banner. We are in His service. And then Moses says something very cryptic. He says what many translations uh, paraphrase as, the Lord has sworn. The Hebrew doesn't say that. The Hebrew says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, or a hand against the throne of the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, I'm pretty sure that it means, the word upon is a very basic preposition. It can mean on, towards, over, or against. And I'm pretty sure Moses is saying, a hand was stretched out against the Lord's throne. That is, Amalek attacked God's kingdom. Amalek tried to take down the rule of the Lord. And so, God will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amalek raised their hand against God's throne by attacking God's people. In other words, what is God saying? I've bound my kingdom and my people together in my mind. I will just as soon forsake you to the enemy as I will get off my throne and let somebody else rule this cosmos. Amalek stretched out its hand against God's throne and God fights back. God will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's how committed he is to his throne, to his kingdom, to his rule, and to the defense of his people. You attack Israel, you attack him. Israel moves on. They go on to meet with Jethro and so on and by the rest of end of Exodus, they're seemingly out of the picture. But God doesn't forget Amalek. And even in one of the very last books of the Old Testament, Esther, we see Amalek rearing its head again in the person of Haman, Haman the Agagite. And Agag was the king of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel. God hasn't forgotten his war with Amalek. He's still in the business of protecting his people. So God can and does hold grudges against those who attack his people. That's a message here. God revealed himself as the one who responds to his people's complaints by providing for them. Now he reveals himself as the one who responds to his people's attackers by putting them on a blacklist and saying, you attack my people, I will have it out for you forever. God will have his revenge. Which means that you and I don't need to have it. We don't have to say, oh, those Amalekites, they killed grandma at the end of the column. No, God will deal with the Amalekites. We can forget the Amalekites, forgive the Amalekites, and move on. So what's the message of this passage? It's don't mess with the kingdom of God. He must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. Amalek is not the last of those enemies. Death is the last of those enemies. So when you see the enemies of God attacking the people of God or gearing up to attack the people of God, don't despair. As we saw this morning, the devout Jews, or the, the envious Jews, the devout women, rise up and attack Paul and Barnabas. 
Don't be sad or say, oh no, this is terrible. God isn't going to be able to protect his people now. No, that's not the message. God is able to protect his people when Amalek attacks, when any other tyrant or persecutor or enemy attacks. So when the church is in trouble, when people are being persecuted, understand that when God sees a hand stretched out against his throne, he is perfectly capable of pushing that hand away, defending his throne, and defending his people. An attack on a citizen of the kingdom of God is an attack on the kingdom of God. And God takes those attacks seriously, and he will repay them. So you can write this down, God says. Tell Joshua, tell the people who are being attacked in my service, I know what happened to you, and I will defend and save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, a hand was stretched out against your throne on this occasion and on many, many others. But you have promised that you will defend your kingdom and protect your people. Lord, give us confidence in that. Make us a joyful people who are free from fear, who have every confidence that you can deal with Amalek, with Pharaoh, with Assyria, Babylon, and any other enemy, the beast, the dragon, the false prophet, any enemy that arises to attack your people and harm your church. Give us the grace to believe that, to trust you in that, to triumph by faith over any and every attack. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.